0: The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. Greetings.
1: This has been a big week for me. I've had a lot of extra output, but the Lord has been kind and Bright and early this morning, before the deer were awake, uh, God was meeting me, and I'm eager to walk through this text today. We're in Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54, so I invite you to turn in your Bibles there. We're going to look at this passage I've been working through it now for several weeks, trying to prepare for uh, our journey. And I see two main divisions. All of this is growing off of the great saving work that we've just gotten to read about in Isaiah 53. So just look at the final... Two verses of Isaiah 53 with me. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, that is, my servant, will make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So the many... Accounted righteous while this suffering servant bears the iniquities. That is the great exchange. That is the gospel. That the reigning God saves and satisfies believing sinners whose sins have been counted to Christ and whose righteousness has been counted to us. Verse 12 Therefore I will do- divide him a portion and You may recall that I tweaked the translation here. I'll divide him a portion in the many, and he shall divide as spoil the strong. Meaning that he's not equal with the many in getting a share. It's the many who are his reward for what he has done. He will see His offspring. He will see and be glad. For the joy set before Him, He endures the cross. And I think in these verses, it's saying that the many that He has saved, the many that He's accounted righteous, are the very um, rewards of His victory. Why? Because He poured out His soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He became sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might... Enjoy the righteousness of God. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many. And right now, next to his Father, he is making intercession for everyone for whom he is saved. It's amazing. So now we read, and I'm just going to focus on the first ten verses here. We read in Isaiah 54 verse 1. "'Sing, O barren one who did not bear. "'Break forth into singing and cry aloud, "'You who have not been in labor. "'For the children of the desolate one will be more,' "'that is, will be many,' "'using the same word we see twice in verse 12. "'The children of the desolate one will be many "'greater than the children of her who is married.'" says the Lord. See, you've got a woman here, a barren woman, that is being contrasted with another who's called upon to sing, to sing. Right there, a call to sing. Verses 2 and 3, Enlarge the place of your tent, this one who was barren and who now has many, children enlarge the place of your tent let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out do not hold back lengthen your cords strengthen your stakes for you will spread abroad to the right to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will be will people the desolate cities oh fear not for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. Why? Because your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. So now we learn that this woman, this barren woman, is the very bride of God. And elsewhere throughout the book, who is the bride? Of God in the book. Anybody remember? It's Israel, but how is she represented as a, a woman? Who's the bride of God? Okay, the church. We're jumping ahead, but yes. Today, okay, you you mentioned Israel. We just listened to Hosea, right? And God declares, you are not my wife and I am not your husband. But then I will woo you back and no longer will you say, my Lord, you will say, my husband. In the very last two chapters of our Bible, John is told, come out, come out and see the bride, the bride of the Lamb. And he comes out, and immediately what he sees is a city. A city. Coming down from heaven, the city Jerusalem, is the bride. And that city has offspring. The city is Israel in one sense. Let's keep going. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Because the Lord has called you. Like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth. When she's cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you. This is the sermon we just heard this morning. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should be no more, should no more go over the whole earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart, the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. And then we're going to see, as we move through the rest of the chapter, that he's talking to a city. He's talking to Zion, who is the embodiment, the picture of Israel, as Bert mentioned. So, a call to sing, a call to enlarge the dwelling, and then, in verse 4, a call to fear not... To not be disgraced. We're going to look today at the first three verses. A proper response to promises of descendants, dwelling, and no disgrace. Let's just look at the beginning. Sing. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing. Cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. So we have the call to sing... And then the reason to sing, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. So we've got we've to put our thinking caps on here because the language of barrenness might come as a little bit of a shock. I mean, it, how does that fit into anything? So somehow he's portraying a, a woman who is a people, who has not produced and contrasting this woman with another gal who has been apparently bountiful and yet insufficiently bountiful. And there's a contrast between the woman who is married and the woman who Is barren, apparently, also having a husband, and yet there's, it's almost as though there's two brides for the same man because the one woman is married, sorry, the one woman is barren, and that was often a cause for a second bride. And that second bride has had children, and yet the first bride who's barren is being promised there's something coming for you. Now, does that, just that little basic scenario, remind you of anything in Israel's history? Sarah and, Hagar. Sarah and Hagar. Okay. So, who's Sarah? Abraham's first wife. And what do we learn about her in Genesis 1130? First thing we learn about Sarah. Sarah, his wife, was barren. Okay. So, Sarah represents the people of God. It's from her that all of Israel is going to come. And yet there's a promise given to Abraham that he's going to become a nation. And not only that, that through him all the nations of the world will become his children. He'll be a father of a multitude of nations. But in the story of Genesis, Sarah Doesn't have kids, and she doesn't have kids, and she doesn't have kids. Genesis 15 comes, and Abraham says, I don't have an heir. You haven't given me any offspring. God, you've got a problem here. What's going on? Eliezer of Damascus is my only heir, and he's not my blood. Now, God makes a promise there. And yet, one chapter later, Sarah's going to take things into her own hands, and she's going to say... Take Hagar, let her become your wife. So Abraham has two wives at that point. And immediately, we're going to read, something happens. So I'm just going to read Genesis 16 really quick. Not the whole thing, just two verses. Genesis 16, 3 and 4, here's what we read. So Abraham, after he'd lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar. She conceived. And when she saw that she'd conceived, Sarah looked with contempt, or she looked at contempt, on her mistress. So... Our passage says, Barren ones sing who did not bear. Because the children of the desolate one will be many, will be more than the children of the one who's married. So, it, it, it's, it's, if I didn't have other help, which we're about to look at, it would be pretty tricky to figure this out. But there's hints in the past and there's hints within the book and then there's pointers in the future all of which give clarity that we're supposed to be thinking about Sarah and Hagar so let's consider a few here's Genesis 15:5 God's promised in Genesis 3:15 what what was the great promise there in Genesis 3 regarding offspring Anybody? There's going to be an offspring of the woman. What's he going to do? Crush the serpent. So the serpent is the antagonist. The one who is trying to destroy all of humanity. Trying to go counter to God's kingdom-building purposes. Fill the earth. Multiply. Subdue it as my, with my image. Take my glory. Uh, that mankind has a capacity to display, take my glory to the ends of the earth. And Satan is there trying to thwart such kingdom building purposes. Yet God promises, before he ever declares judgment on Adam and Eve, I'm going to raise up an offspring. Offspring. There's two genealogies segmented genealogy, broken down, displaying the offspring of the serpent. It's people, not little snakes and the offspring of the woman who are hoping in the ultimate offspring. And it's it's the second set of genealogies in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11 that link Adam all the way to Abraham. So when we read that Abraham is to anticipate he's going to become a nation, and when we read that he and his offspring will serve as a channel of blessing, overcoming the curse on a global scale, we're already supposed to be thinking about the promise given to the woman in Genesis chapter 3. When Abraham says, I have no offspring, we as the reader are supposed to feel the significance of that statement. It's not just that one man and one woman have no child. It's that the world's being reconciled with God... Hinges on this man because God's chosen to set him apart. And Abraham is questioning it in Genesis fifteen, and God takes him out and says, Look toward heaven. Start counting. One, two, three, eight zillion five hundred and twenty-seven. If you're able to number them, so shall your offspring. ESV says be. But in the context, the offspring is not many, the offspring is one. I don't have an offspring. Later, we're going to learn, through Isaac, I'll establish my covenant. But then we also learn, through Isaac, will your offspring be reckoned. Meaning that the offspring and Isaac are two different people. The offspring of promise is going to come through the line of Isaac, who is the son of Abraham, but Isaac is not the promised offspring. Your offspring will become like the stars in the sky. That's what's given to Abraham. But it's not only to Abraham, this promise that his his offspring would be of great numbers, then reinforced in chapter 17 and we find out that it doesn't include what Hagar is going to produce. Listen. Abraham, I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. I've changed your name from Avram to Avraham. From exalted father to a father of a multitude. I'll make you a father of a multitude of nations. I'll make you exceedingly fruitful... Indeed, I'll make you into nations. Kings shall come from you. And then notice that it's repeated just ten verses later. I will bless Sarah. Moreover, I'll give you a son by her. I'll bless her. She shall become nations. So if Abraham has two wives and then he's going to get two more concubines, the point is not of the offspring promise, Okay, let's see. Hagar's going to have Ishmael, who's going to become all of the Arab population. That's one nation. Sarah's going to have Isaac, who will have Jacob, who will become Israel, but he'll also have Esau. Esau will become Edom. Okay, there we've got three nations. Is that enough to make a multitude? But the fact that it's repeated, that not only will Abraham be a father of a multitude, but Sarah will be a mother of a multitude identifies that the promise is is bigger than biology and it's also restricted through Sarah. It doesn't include anyone else. And through Sarah only two nations come. And I don't think that's enough to make a multitude. And the saving of the Jews through Christ so the question is, could this also refer to the of, saving of the Gentiles and the saving of the Jews through christ well that 's what Paul says in Romans four that this offspring promise of becoming many we 're talking about the ultimate promise that a blessing would come, that the curse would be overcome. And in all the Old Testament, Abraham is only the father of a single nation in that sense. He's the father of Israel. Even when Ruth, Rahab the Canaanite, Ruth the Moabite, and Uriah the Hittite enter in, they all become Israelites. He's still the father of one nation. We're looking ahead to a day when, most likely not by biology, but by adoption. Abraham's fatherhood would stretch beyond and reach out to nations. And at no point in Israel's history of the Old Testament did that ever happen. So, when I look at this, look at the background and see a barren woman put alongside of a fertile woman, and yet The promise is more's coming. It reminds me of Sarah, whose barrenness lasts a very long time. And both Abraham and Sarah are like, is this ever going to happen? God says it's going to happen one year from now. And Sarah's inside the tent making some muffins. And she hears it. And what does she do? She laughs. I'm 90, hello? Yet it says nothing is impossible with God. And she gets pregnant and she has a son. It's that type of story. So, so it's like the story of Sarah and Hagar is being played out on a much greater scale. What happened between these two women within the home of Abraham has happened on a broader scale. And what scale would that be? Here's Isaiah, a thousand years removed from the patriarchal promises. And the blessing has still not reached the nations, the offspring has not expanded. Will it ever happen? Here's what I think Isaiah's getting at, and then I'm going to justify it with some other texts. When we read, Sing, O barren one who didn't bear, we're talking about the ultimate promise that God would, through Abraham, bless the nations. That his offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And yet it hasn't happened. It's as if that promise has been laying dormant in a dead womb. And yet there's another promise that has happened. He's become a nation. And that nation has had generation after generation after generation of offspring that has been wicked. That have not... Done what God said. I'll make you into a great nation, Abraham. And then he commanded, Be a blessing so that through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. They've never been a blessing. And therefore, we've never seen the blessing of God reach the nations. Instead, they've been hard-hearted. They've been rebellious. They've turned on God. It's been an extended period of the Mosaic covenant that has not produced lasting life. So Hagar is like... The Mosaic Covenant. Quick to produce in some ways, and yet not the channel that's going to bring life to the world. The full Abrahamic covenant promises remain unfulfilled. This is how God talks to the Israel of Isaiah's day who were underneath the Mosaic Covenant. Wake yourself up. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. There it is. The city. Stand up, you who've drunk from the hand of the cup, the, the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk the dregs to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering, there is none to guide her among all the sons she's born. She's born so many children, and yet generation after generation, they've been hard-hearted, they haven't been aligned with the ultimate promise. There's none to take her by the hand among all the sons she's brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you, you, O Jerusalem? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? But then there's a second half. And that's this. That God has promised a new work. A work that says, I'm going to raise up a new Israel through whom all the world will be blessed. Look at how he talked in Isaiah. So this was Isaiah 51 at the end. This is Isaiah 51 at the beginning. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, that remnant who is following me, look to the rock from which you are hewn to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, to Sarah who bore you. Go back to the beginning. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. So there's the state of the present Israel that is filled with rebellion, eyes that cannot see, ears that cannot hear. And then... There's a remnant hoping in a greater offspring. A more ultimate Israel. Listen to how Paul reads Isaiah 54. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women, Sarah and Hagar, are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai... Which covenant was established at Mount Sinai? The Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant. Today, Pastor Pastor Stephen quoted Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, days are coming when I will make with you a new covenant. Make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that they broke, those who I brought my hand and led out of Egypt, even though I was a husband to them. The covenant that contrasts with the new covenant is the Mosaic covenant. The old covenant is not specifically the Abrahamic or the Noahic, Adamic, Davidic. The old covenant that contrasts with the new covenant, according to Jeremiah, is the Mosaic covenant. That's the covenant that would be temporary. Paul says, The law was our guardian until Christ. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under that guardian. The Mosaic law was a temporary reality, Paul says, to increase sin. It bore a ministry of death, 2 Corinthians 3 verse 7. 7. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 9, it bore a ministry of condemnation. It was filled with rebellion, and it didn't go anywhere. Paul compares Hagar to Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. We talked a lot about Jerusalem last year identifying that there is a Jerusalem on earth, and then that there is a more ultimate Jerusalem above. Remember, that's what we see in Revelation 21. The Jerusalem that is above that comes down. And those who are in Christ are part of that heavenly presence, divine presence filled city. We're identified with that city, but the Jerusalem that is above is free, and then look what it says, she is our mother. So the Jerusalem that is above has offspring. And the Jerusalem that is below has offspring. The Jerusalem that is located in the Middle East today, Paul was there and he says, it's a place of death, not of life. He does not link the people of God in Galatia, to that Jerusalem. He links them to their ultimate mother. Our citizenship is not here. Our home is not here. It's to a Jerusalem that is above, where Christ is seated, the ultimate groom, and He is building His bride. For it is written, Regarding the Jerusalem below and the Jerusalem above, it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Brother John.
2: sense. I mean, I understand where this goes in terms of what you've just described, but it also, I can't enforce that from the physical Middle Eastern city of Jerusalem, where you see that division. And and, and I also go back to um, Hagar. The promise given to Hagar is such a mystery to me. It's like she was blessed to have children, mm-hmm. multiple, ch- multitudes of children herself, but the, well, her child would be a, a wild donkey of a man, or however mm-hmm. it is described in that. But, and I don't know. Anyway, I just see that... I'm just confused by this. Right, the whole promise and that, that it still lands in Jerusalem right now, the, the Jerusalem physical right now. And it seems like so, there's still a salvation side of, of the Jewish remnant in, in Jerusalem. I, I don't know. I'm, maybe I'm not making any sense. <laughs> it wouldn't be the first time.
1: <laughs> Thank you, John. Yeah. Um, the... There is no bride of Yahweh unless you are identified with His servant. I'll hit that home very shortly. Both Jew and Gentile need to be adopted, not just the Gentiles. And I'll hit that home very shortly. Let's consider it. So, that this is... Um, I sat in my study this morning and feeling the weight of the complexity of this passage. Um, But I'm hoping we can make it clearer by moving into the next section. Let's just look at verse 2 now. We've got a charge to enlarge and then the reason why they need to enlarge. Namely, why the city needs to get bigger. Enlarge the place of your tent. This is the barren one who's now had more children than the children of the one who was married. So, enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen the cords. Strengthen your stakes because you will spread abroad to the right, to the left. And your offspring, the offspring of this City woman will possess nations. There's going to be nations that are now associated with the offspring. And they'll people desolate cities. Hear the past promise. We've just saw the promise that Abraham would be a father of a multitude of nations. When will it happen? Genesis 22, I'll bless you, Abraham. I'll multiply your offspring. In the previous chapter, it said through Isaac, your offspring will be accounted. Meaning that the offspring is different than Isaac. In Genesis 22, he sacrifices his son, his only son, Isaac, whom he loves. At least that's what he's ready to do. God preserves Isaac and then God says, now I know that you fear me. I will bless you. And your offspring, who is not Isaac, I don't believe, will multiply like the stars in the sky. That's the same echo of Genesis 15.5. And then it says, And your offspring will possess the gate of his enemies. And through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now notice the, and we've come to this text many times, notice the third masculine singular pronoun. The offspring will possess the gate of his enemies. Now what that means is that one, we're talking about a person, not a people. Number two, what it means is that his turf has just expanded. There were once enemy gates outside of his sphere of sovereignty that have now been overcome. He possesses their gates. His turf has expanded. His land has grown. And where there were once hostile peoples, hostile nations, they are now surrendered to a new king. Consider the next passage. And and it's defined as... It's unpacked then, and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Rather than cursed by God, when they have an association with the offspring, they are blessed. Genesis 26, Isaac, I want you to sojourn in this land. Notice the singular. I've promised you a land. Twelve tribes will reside there. I will be with you and will bless you for to you and to your offspring I will give these what? lands The land is where I've planted you but I've got bigger things in store. I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. What oath? I swear by myself, I will multiply your offspring like the stars of the sky. Your offspring will possess the gate of his enemies. And through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I'm going to establish it through you, Isaac. I'll multiply your offspring as the stars of the sky. So, Isaac's offspring is the same offspring of Abraham. Same offspring. Remember how Paul talks in Galatians 3.16... And the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, plural, but to offspring singular, who is Christ. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven. I'll give to your offspring all these lands. So up here, the offspring will possess the gate of his enemies. Now the promise is that that offspring, whenever he comes, will possess not only the land, but the lands. His turf is going to grow. Romans 4.13 The Lord promised to Abraham that he would inherit what? The world. The world. In your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. How about this one? Your offspring will become like the dust of the earth. That's the same promise that we've seen echoed. You shall spread abroad. Look at Isaiah 54. That's the exact same verb used in verse 3. Spread abroad. Where? To the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Here's the language that we've already seen leading up to this point. I've just picked a few of the texts that we've walked through a handful of times coming to this point in the last two years. Thus says the Lord, The wealth of Egypt... That's an outside nation. The merchandise of Cush. That's an outside nation. The Sabians. All of these are in the south. Men of stature shall come over to you and shall be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains, surrendered, slaves of a new king to bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, surely your God is in you and there is no other, no God beside him. And I think this is what's happening. It's what's happened, I believe, in this room. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'll lift up my hand to the nations, raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons. Remember, all of these are of Jerusalem. The your is feminine singular. It's your Jerusalem, your sons, your, your offspring are going to be brought in. The nations are directly associated they shall bring your sons in the arms. Your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall, bring your, shall be your foster fathers. Queens, your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Now there's a promise. There's a number of them we could have gone to, but there's a contemporary to Isaiah. Which prophets were contemporary, same time as Isaiah? Anybody remember? He had a friend in Jerusalem. His name was Micah. But then there were two bros up north, one of whom had lived not far from Jerusalem, but then he was a foreign missionary up to the northern kingdom of Israel. His name was Amos. And then the guy that we heard from this morning, Hosea. They're living at the same time as Isaiah. He was probably a little younger than them, but they're ministering at the same time. And So while Isaiah is predicting what he's predicting down south, Amos is up north, and hear how Amos ends his book. He's going to use the exact same word that we read about in verse 3, possess the nations. Here it is. In that day... I will raise up the booth of David. So King David, his tent will fall. That's Judah. But the day is coming when God will raise up, as he promised David, a greater son, a son of David, who will rule. But you, Bethlehem, remember that's where David was born, though you be small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come a ruler. That's Micah. Same time, promising a future for the Davidic kingdom. I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches. I'll raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. It's going to be a kingdom that's going to have global influence. Now notice what it says. In order that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. So the Davidic kingdom that God will establish in the future through the one we know of as the Son of David. His name is Jesus and He's already come. All authority in heaven and on earth has already been given to Him. He is establishing the kingdom. He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. He told us to plead with God that the kingdom would come. And then He stood as a resurrected king and said, all authority has been given to Me. Now go, make disciples of all nations, calling them to submit to a new king. This king has established a kingdom wherein his kingdom possesses the remnant of Edom that's the only foreign people that stands representative of all the rest of the nations who are called by God's name. Now, does anybody remember any place in the New Testament that cites this text? one of the elders in Jerusalem quoted it with significant purpose. In the book of Acts, they were questioning whether Paul and Barnabas should be allowed to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Remember who talked? James. James, the brother of Jesus, now servant to King Jesus stands up among the elders and says, Brothers, don't you remember what the prophets told us? That the gospel would go to the nations. That's exactly what they told us would happen. And then he cites this text. James says, Our brother Simeon, Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles. He was at Caesarea Philippi and God showed up and saved Cornelius, a Roman Leader, Peter's told us how that happened. In order to take from them a people for His name. Nations who are called by My name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just that as it is written, After this I'll return, I'll rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I'll rebuild its ruins, I'll restore it. In order that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the nations, all the Gentiles. Almost every time the Greek New Testament sees the word ethne, nations, it translates it Gentiles, but it's the same term. Exact same term. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Now what's the biggest difference between This prediction that you see, and this prediction, what stands out most? Mankind versus Edom. Now, mankind, the word there is Adam. Now, if you can just listen, Edom. It's the exact same consonants, different vowels. And so, Edom means red, dusty. And that's what Adam, Adam means. But back in the days of Jesus, there were no vowels. Even before Jesus, there were no vowels that they actually put into the text. It was just consonants. And the Greek translator, when he came to Amos chapter 9, he rendered Edom as Adam. That is, mankind. And how many of you have cited a Hebrew text lately? How many of you have cited an ESV verse lately? A few more in the room. So, I think that's all that James is doing. He's just got his Greek translation open. That's the one he's memorized from. Just like we all memorize from our English ESVs or our NIVs. He's memorized from his Septuagint and Edom there is actually, it's representative. It's it's one people among many, but it uses, the, the Hebrew text uses that name, and the Greek translator read it as mankind. But it doesn't impact the meaning at all. The point is exactly the same. There's a remnant from mankind. There's a remnant from the nations called by God's name. And when we read that the tent of David would possess the nations, what we're supposed to think is how we understand the nature of the church. We're so, that's what James is saying. When you read that they're going to possess the nations, you're not thinking enslavement in a classic sense. You're thinking about surrender. That there are going to be a bunch of Gentiles in this future day who are going to surrender changing their primary loyalties from one king to another. And in doing so, they're going to be identified with a new kingdom. They're going to even go as far as getting new birth certificates. I didn't get to John's question, but I'm going to, but I'll have to do it next week. That's how it's being used here, is that it's not all of Edom that will be saved. It's only some from Edom who will be saved. And what's really striking is that the book right after Amos is Obadiah that focuses all on God's judgment on Edom. And in that book it says there will be no survivors from Edom. Zero. But Amos tells us right here there's going to be a remnant So, what that means is that if there's a remnant from Edom and there's no survivors from Edom, then the remnant from Edom must gain new identities. Consider in closing for today this passage. This is the song of the day. Sing, sing. What would they have been singing? Here's the psalm Psalm 87. Look at how it talks about Jerusalem. On my holy mountain stands the city, on the holy mountain stands the city that he founded. Yahweh loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. Among those who know me, hear this I mention Rahab. A symbol of Egypt, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, Cush. These are all non Israelite peoples. Among those in my world who know me are those from all these foreign nations. What is said of them? This one was born there. Where? In the city of God. This one was born there. Where? In Zion. Of Zion it will be said, this one and that one were born in her. Why? Because the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord records as He registers the people. This one, born there. John, hellbound. What city were you born in? Sioux Sioux Center, Iowa. No way. Jerusalem, I declare it. New birth certificate. Jason DeRoshi, Petoskey, Michigan. No? No. Brand new adoption. Here is your birth certificate. The other one I'm throwing away. Spread out your tent, O Jerusalem. It might seem like you were barren for a long time, but I am intruding in and bringing my gospel promises that the blessing will overcome the curse, and I'm going to give people new identities in the new Jerusalem. It's the Jerusalem that, what does Paul say? Is our mother. The Jerusalem above is our mother. And we have new identities in a family of God. And who's the father? Yahweh, who makes himself known to us through Jesus. He is the groom of this bride. We'll pick up here next week. Father, go before us. Thank You that You have given us a new name, new birth certificates, new identities. We celebrate this. That You've expanded and are expanding Your tent. Your Davidic Kingdom tent. Where King Jesus reigns and where He is redeeming a bride for Himself and creating a new creational covenant of peace. Let us rest reconciled and protected in such a context. For your glory we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.